Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor. Thanks for joining us. We're in the midst of a series entitled Zero Hour, looking to a story in the book of Daniel of young men who took a stand for their faith. Listen in as lead pastor Jeff Kincaid continues in week three of Zero Hour. turn with me to Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Daniel chapter 3, I'll meet you there in a moment. If you're new to City Church or if you are joining us by our podcast today, we're in the third week of a four-week series called Zero Hour, What Will You Do? And what prompted this series is the growing recognition on the part of many thought leaders in Christianity that our culture is changing rapidly and in many ways becoming not just less Christian, but even anti-Christian. And when we use this phrase, zero hour, what we're referring to is this. If a day were ever to come in which you had to make a decision between denying your belief in Christ or facing persecution of some kind, what would you do? That's what we mean by zero hour. You have to make a decision, let's say. It's uh, deny Christ or lose your career. Or deny Christ or lose your freedom. Or deny Christ or lose your home or even your life. What will you do in that moment? That's what we mean by zero hour. One of the things that I really love about City Church is that we're a very generationally diverse church. I think that's ideal. Most churches uh, don't have that, by the way. But one of the great challenges that it presents to me as a communicator is that I have to remember that each generation that's represented here has vastly different experiences living here in America. For instance, one of our elders, his name is Paul Kleinconnect. Paul is so old that he remembers... When Samuel Adams was actually a member of Congress, not the name of a beer. Our facilities director, John Austin, he's so old that he was telling me the other day that he remembers when the Liberty Bell wasn't cracked. These are old, old people, you see. Seriously, though, our middle-aged and our older people in this church remember a day in which the cultural and educational and governmental institutions in America largely supported Christian beliefs. It's not that those institutions were Christian necessarily. It's just that they largely supported the same moral framework that Christianity did. Let me give you an example of that. Some people in our church remember when public schools opened the day in prayer and even reading from the Bible. They remember a day in which television studios were so concerned about moral values as it relates to sex that Lucy and Desi Arnaz, a fictional married couple, slept in separate beds on the show. Can you believe that? There was actually a code back then that regulated uh, movies and television shows, and it stipulated that when on-screen characters kissed, they both had to have their feet on the floor. They couldn't be in bed. Is that amazing? So when I talk about our culture changing rapidly, these people automatically know what I'm referring to. But I also realize that many of you have no frame of reference for what I'm talking about. You don't remember a time in which, say, a vast majority of families were intact when divorce wasn't widely accepted. You don't remember a day like that. 
Like you don't remember a time in which pornography was difficult to find and that you had to go to a counter and ask for it and buy it from someone. Today, every device that you have has pornography available with just a click or the touch of a button. This is your everyday reality, and it has been for as long as you can remember. You don't understand all of these cultural changes. You don't have a, 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 a framework to understand these. This is just the way it's always been for you. And so this is one of the reasons that I think that the narratives that we're looking at in the book of Daniel in this series are so perfect for a generationally diverse congregation like ours. On the one hand, you've got Daniel and his friends. They're young guys. They're maybe teenagers. They find themselves living in a foreign land, risking their very lives for standing up for their faith. But on the other hand, like many of the middle-aged and older people here, they're having to navigate a culture, too, in which not only the beliefs and the morals are different, but in which the cultural and educational and governmental institutions are built around religious ideas that are in contrast to the values and religious ideas that they were taught back home. So Daniel and his friends, really, their challenges speak to every generation that's here this morning. Now, in chapter 3... It seems that Daniel and his friends have finished their education that we were talking about in chapter 1, and they've been appointed to positions of real power within the government of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel doesn't actually show up in this passage for reasons that we don't know, we're not told, but his friends are going to find themselves in a very real and terrifying zero-hour of their own. And I should tell you that this whole episode occupies all of chapter 3, so we won't have time to read every verse. We'll just catch the crucial verses, and verse 1 is one of those. Let's read verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. That's about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up is going to become a major problem for Daniel's friends. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the significance of this image. I want to talk about the logic that's behind this image, why Nebuchadnezzar had it set up. And then finally, I want to show you a more powerful image. You got it? The significance of this image, the logic behind this image, and then I want to give you a more powerful image. Let's start with the significance of this image. In verses 2 and 3, the king summons all of his governmental officials representing all of the nations that he has conquered, and he summons them to a dedication of this image. Skip down to verse 4. Verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. So what we have here is what theologians would call a high-level shindig. You've got all of the government. You guys, you guys does my humor, does, does it go over your head? Is that what it is? Is it just too fast for you? Is it too advanced? Somebody's nodding yes. You've got all the governmental leaders and their spouses at this big dedication ceremony. It's probably like a big sheet with a purple rope that's uh, 
covering this 90 foot by 9 foot image until the big reveal. Guests are ushered in uh, into on their arrival one of those huge white tents that you often see at weddings for uh, a pre-ceremony gathering. Champagne, caviar, shrimp on ice, lots of important and beautiful people all dressed up, an orchestra playing in the background. It's a big deal. Now, it's usually assumed that the significance of this image is that it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so they would say, well, well, he's demanding that people worship him. But the text doesn't say that. And, in fact, no historical records exist of any Babylonian king being divinized in that way. So then, what is this image? Well, some have suggested maybe it's an image of a Babylonian god. But the text doesn't say that either, and there's plenty of opportunity for the text to say, say that. What seems most likely is, is, is that this was an image of some kind that represented the whole pantheon of the Babylonian gods collectively. Like, like all of their gods represented in this one image. Now, as the ceremony begins, everyone gathers around this image, and the royal herald explains to this elite and this diverse crowd, says that when the image is revealed, the orchestra will start playing, and he says the only appropriate response, it's not polite applause, it's to hit the ground and worship this image. And if you don't, you're going to be thrown into the blazing furnace. So it's bow or burn. Those are your choices. Now, why would, why would Nebuchadnezzar do this? What's the, what's the point here? Well, if you think about it, he knows that he's got all of these nations that he has conquered that are represented here. And, and all of these nations have their own gods and they have their own religions. But how in the world do you ever have peace in such a multicultural empire with so many religions represented and so many gods represented? Think about his alternatives. He could say, well, stop worshiping your gods and only worship the Babylonian gods. That's going to start a religious war, though. That's not a good option. The better option, the better alternative is to convey that, listen, it's okay to keep worshiping your gods, but you just need to add the the Babylonian gods to your pantheon of gods. Just, Just add them, you know? You've got your gods, that's okay. Here's some more gods. Just add these gods to your pantheon of gods. What he's declaring is that please understand, he's declaring that, he is, that his nation is going to be a religiously pluralistic society. That's the significance of this image. It's a symbol of religious pluralism. In other words, what he's saying is, You can worship any gods that you choose to worship as long as you don't worship any of them exclusively. You must declare by falling down and worshiping this idol that all gods are equally valid and that no one god is absolute. No one's god is absolute. No one's truth represents the truth. No one's God is more authoritative than any other god. All of the gods are equally valid, and no matter which god you worship, All of them lead to the same truth. Does that sound familiar? It's amazing how modern Nebuchadnezzar is. This is very much 2017 American culture. 
And to the average person at this dedication ceremony or the average pluralist in America today, this whole situation, it's like it's no big deal. Sure, fine. I, I believe that there's a lot of gods. I'm not so bigoted as to believe that there is only one God. I can affirm your truth. I can affirm your gods. You affirm mine. And let's all be friends and have another flu to the bubbly over there. But what about you? What about, what about you? What would you do if you were in that situation? Put yourself there. What would you do? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the same problem that Daniel's friends are going to have. Daniel's Jewish friends had been taught from birth the Shema. The Shema comes from the book of Deuteronomy. It was a part of their morning and evening prayers. And the Shema goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not many gods, one God. In fact, it was, as I said, it was so important to their faith that it was part of their morning and evening prayers. Every day, every night. They were monotheists, you see. Mono meaning one. Theist meaning a person who believes in God. Monotheism. One God. There aren't a bunch of different gods. There is one God. He is authoritative. He is exclusive. He is the truth. That's what they believed. And if you're a follower of Christ, you believe that this same God, that Daniel's friends are, that Daniel and his friends worship, you believe that this same God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, and who once said this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one passes to the Father but through me. Now, that's a pretty exclusive statement, wouldn't you say? And so if you bow down here, if you just hit the dirt out of expediency, you're denying what the God of truth proclaims. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's a gun to your head. Bow or burn, which do you choose? Now, I, I thought about this this week, and, and I wondered, well, what, what would I do in this situation? And I have to say that the thought crossed my mind, well, what's the big deal? Bowing down, hitting the dirt doesn't really mean that I worship this image. I can, you know, I can just do that on the outside, but know that on the inside, where it really counts, that I only worship Jesus, not this, not this ridiculous image in front of me. And for a moment, I felt relieved. Great, I, you know, I don't have to do that. But then it dawned on me, that, that doesn't work. I realized that these people, these other people at the dedication around me, I realized they're my neighbors. These are the nations to which I am to be a witness. Jesus said it in Acts chapter 1a. All of the nations, be a witness to all of the nations, to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. Here they are, right here. These are the nations that I'm to be a witness to. How can I tell them that the most important person in the world is Jesus, and that the most important thing in life is to believe in this Jesus, and then compromise by worshiping this ridiculous thing in front of me? I'd be leading them astray. I have a responsibility to them. Even if I don't know them, I have a responsibility to them. So I can't bow. Then I look over at that huge furnace that they've got roaring over there, and I think I'd, 
I definitely don't want to burn either. That thing is so hot, you can feel it over here in front of this gaudy gold statue. And I hear that burning to death is one of the most torturous ways to die. So this is a real zero hour. It's bow or burn. What are you going to do? What decision are you going to make? How important is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ being glorified? How important is that to you? You might not even even known that when you became a follower of Jesus that you were going to face this kind of persecution. But Jesus said it all along. He said, he said listen, if they're going to persecute me, you know they're going to persecute you, persecute you. If they hate me, you know they're going to hate you. Be prepared. Anyone who's going to follow after me, he's got to pick up his cross and deny himself. And that's what he was saying. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, before we look at that, before we look at what Daniel's friends do, I want to just take a second now and I want to evaluate the logic behind this image. The significance of the image, the first thing I wanted to talk about, is that it's a declaration of religious pluralism. Nebuchadnezzar saying, you know, we got a lot of gods here, there's no one God. Well, I want to talk now about the logic behind this image. Nebuchadnezzar's logical premise is the same as religious pluralists today. Here's the logic. You can't have peace in a society if people believe that their God is the exclusive God. It will lead to intolerance. You won't be able to have peace. Here's my question. Is that true? Is it true that if a people believe that their God is the exclusive God, that it leads to intolerance? Well, let's say for the moment that a religious pluralist today were to look at Islam. Islam is a very exclusive, monotheistic religion. What happens in Islam if you convert and believe in, say, Jesus? Listen to this. A Muslim man by the name of Javed, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Javed Khan, through a long series of events, converted and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. We're going to put it up on the screen, too, so you can read it if you want. I was baptized, he says, on, the 20, on 21st April 2013 and am trying to be an ambassador for Jesus in Muslim communities. My older brother found out I had become a Christian and said if he heard me say the words, he would come to Cambridge, that's where he met Christ, come to Cambridge and kill me. I can't bear the thought of losing contact with my family, especially my mom. But I know I need to stand up for my faith. My brother persecutes me because I chose my religion myself. Islam doesn't allow choice. He has never killed anyone in his life. But this would be like an honor killing. Did you hear that? Islam doesn't allow choice, he says. And that seems to confirm Nebuchadnezzar's logic and the logic of religious pluralists everywhere. That's how exclusivity works. It breeds intolerance, which in turn breeds either war or a totalitarian society. That makes perfect sense if Islam is what you're looking at. But does it make sense? Is it true that exclusivity breeds intolerance, which breeds either war or totalitarianism? Is it true? Those of you who are in city life groups 
this week, you're going to discuss that. That's going to be one of your questions. I want you to talk about that. Is that a true statement or is it not? Just consider that in your group. Does it make sense that exclusivity leads to intolerance and totalitarianism? That's your question. But it makes sense to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he decides to nip any exclusivity in the bud by commanding everyone in his government, representing all of those different nations, to bow down to this image of the Babylonian gods. So the king walks to the image. The timpanists in the orchestra are playing a dramatic drum roll in anticipation of the big reveal. And with a dramatic flourish, the king pulls the purple rope to the sheet. The orchestra strikes up a fanfare. The image is revealed in all of its golden glory. And everyone falls to the ground just as they had been commanded. Well, almost everyone. Not quite everyone. Snitches go to the king and they say in verse 12, There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Before they could even answer, the text says that the king gives them one more chance to bow or burn. What are you going to do? Again, put yourself there. What are you going to do? It's zero out. You have to make a decision right now. What is your answer? Are you going to bow or are you going to burn? The thing is, you don't, you don't have like an hour to think about this. You've got like right now, you have to make a decision. Bow or burn. What are you going to do? How important is Jesus Christ to you? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. The text says that Nebuchadnezzar is enraged, probably embarrassed in front of his whole government. So he orders the Heat in the furnace to be turned up seven times hotter, the text says. His soldiers tie the three men up and they throw them into the fire. It's so hot, the text says, that the soldiers who throw them in even burn to death. But then something beyond belief happens. Something that can only be described as supernatural. Something that defies logic and undermines everything you think you know about matter. But we're out of time, so you'll have to wait until next week to see that. And don't you dare read your Bible this week and get ahead and find out on your own. Don't do that, okay? One last thing that I want to do. We've talked about the significance of the image. It's a a declaration of religious pluralism. We've talked about the logic behind this image. The logic is that, you know, anybody who believes in their God exclusively uh, is going to create, they're going to be intolerant. They're going to create war and, and perhaps even totalitarianism. 
But I want to talk now about a more powerful image. I want to leave you this morning with a more powerful image than the one that Nebuchadnezzar has. Made of gold, 90 feet by, 90, by 9 feet wide. I want to give you a more powerful image. Almost 600 years after this episode in Daniel 3, another king comes along who acts very different than King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar demanded that his people worship or die. But this king died so that his people could worship. King Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile, was so full of wrath that he threw three Jews into a blazing furnace. But this king, the king of the Jews, willingly took upon himself the blazing furnace of God's wrath on a Roman cross so that Jews and Gentiles from all of the nations who believe on him would never have to experience God's wrath. And I just want to tell you that until you set your mind's eye on that image of King Jesus on a cross, until you understand that the only one who was ever worthy of worship willingly died for your sins, no one forced him to give up his life. He chose to do it out of love for people like you and me, people who are broken. He was broken for people who are broken like us, who refused to bow down and worship him. Until you set your mind's eye on that image of Jesus on the cross, you will never, hear me on this, you will never understand why for the last 2,000 years, people have willingly suffered all kinds of persecution all over the world, even death for the glory of his name. Until you set your mind's eye on that image, you will never love him enough to proclaim your belief in him in the face of any persecution, let alone death. You'll never, ever be willing to die and suffer for him until you understand that out of love for you, he died so that you could live. You'll never willingly accept a furnace for his namesake until you realize the value of what he did for you, that he spared you from the fiery furnace of God's wrath. And the one who was worth more than all of the gold in the world paid your debt, not with gold, but with his blood that ran red as it was shed on the cross. You'll never be willing to suffer for him until you realize all that he suffered for you. Now look, none of us want to suffer. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know if we'll ever face this kind of persecution for our faith in Christ. But if we do, there's this old hymn that churches used to sing a long time ago. And... The words, I I wish I could sing. I'd sing it for you if I could, but you don't want me to sing. Here's how the words went. Some of you will recognize this. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. We're going to take take communion this morning in just a moment. When the ushers bring the cup and the bread representing Jesus' blood and broken body on the cross, if you believe in Christ, receive the cup and the bread and just just hold on to them so that we can take communion together. But as you hold on to the cup and to the bread, would you just focus your mind's eye on that image of Christ on the cross and would you rejoice and give thanks this morning that there is wonder-working power in the blood of Jesus that not only has that blood paid for your sins, 
But that blood has the power to change you into the kind of person who out of love for Jesus, not fear, but out of love for Jesus could walk into a furnace for the glory of the name of Jesus. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. That's the power of the cross. Now the cup that you're going to hold isn't the blood of Jesus. It doesn't become the blood of Jesus. It represents the blood of Jesus. But would you, as you hold that cup and as you hold that bread, keep your eyes focused on the cross of Jesus Christ and realize that there's power in the blood of Christ. If you believe in Christ, there's power in the blood of Christ, so much so that that power can change you into the kind of person who out of love for Jesus, not fear, would walk into a furnace for the glory of the name of Jesus. The most powerful image in all of human history is Jesus Christ on a Roman cross. Ushers, I'm going to ask you to go and grab the elements back there in the back and bring them up, and I want you to pass them out. And again, when you get the elements, just hold on to them. Focus your mind's eye on the image of Christ on the cross, and then I'll come up and we'll take communion together. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, all of us in this room have images in our mind, uh, in our mind's eye that mediate ideas that we have about the world and how the world works and what power is. And Lord, I, I pray this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would replace those images with the image of you on the cross. And Lord, I pray that for those here this morning that may not understand you died on the cross for their sins so that they don't have to clean their life up to come to you. Pray that this morning as they take communion, this might be the first step of a relationship with you, Lord Jesus Christ. This might be their first act of faith. And then for all of us here this morning, Lord, would you, would you just place that image of you on the cross in our minds? And Lord, would you remind us that the power of the blood of Christ not only frees us from our sin, not only cleanses us, but it also changes us. And in our suffering, whatever suffering we deal with and whatever persecution we might face in the future, that we are transformed into the image of you, Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Well, I do hope that you join us next Sunday at either 9.15 or 11 a.m. for the conclusion of this story and our Zero Hour series. We're located at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville, which is just one block south of the Lloyd off the 1st Avenue exit. We'll look forward to seeing you.